One morning many, many years ago, my then one-and-a-half-year-old son preached a living sermon to me with his bowl of cereal. Yeah, really. As I watched him eating his breakfast, I noticed something very, very interesting. He was actually carefully, very carefully sorting through his bowl, devouring every one of the sweet-tasting marshmallows, which were floating in the milk. But he left the oat shapes behind to grow warm and soggy. Ever had that experience with your children? In fact, when he had eaten every last one of the sweet-tasting tidbits, he proceeded to empty his bowl of the nutritious part of the meal onto the tray and eventually onto the floor. As I watched this progression, I couldn't help but recognize a stark spiritual application. As we come here and sit every Sunday morning, many of us do the very same thing with the Word of God. We come and we selectively pick out of the sermon all the little sweet-tasting tidbits of information that taste good to us, the soft, sugary words that soothe our appetites, tickle our ears, and many times we chuck the rest, the stuff that's really good for us. Sometimes what we need to be healthy doesn't taste as good as the sweet marshmallows, so we play with it for a while and we think about eating those things, but eventually it finds its way onto the floor. When we begin to speak about concepts like Christian commitment and Christian duty, sometimes it tastes to us like soggy, unsweetened oats, hard to swallow. Yet commitment to Christ and an understanding of our duty as Christians is what we need to be a healthy, growing follower of Jesus who contributes to the health and the growth of the church, which contributes ultimately to the health and growth of the nation. Theodore Roosevelt was reported to have said once that the things that will destroy America are peace at any price, prosperity at any cost, safety first instead of duty first, the love of soft living, and the get-rich-quick theory of life. Little did he know that these marshmallows would become the steady diet of many Americans today. It is indeed a rare thing to find people who would give of themselves with little regard for recognition, personal benefit, or monetary returns. Some think, as one writer has observed, that we have eroded into a, quote, people that gauges every request for involvement from the viewpoint of, what do I get out of it? Or how can I get the most for the least? And as a result, our standard has become mediocrity and our goal maintaining the average. The consecrated worker, the high achiever, the dedicated employee, the student who strives for excellence, and I might add the Christian who demonstrates uncompromising commitment, is often labeled a neurotic or shunned as a fanatic. Is that right? The scriptures, however, are full of exhortations and passages which call us above and beyond the call of duty in every area of our Christian lives, in loving others, for example, in forgiving each other, in our devotion to each other, in our avoidance of evil, in bearing one another's burdens, in our spiritual disciplines, 
In all that we do, whether eating or drinking, we are called to do it, how? To the glory of God. Something far above and beyond ourselves and our own gratification. God calls us to a dedication of life that thrives on the challenge of the pursuit of excellence in our Christian character. Amen? These aren't marshmallow passages of Scripture. They're more like soggy oats. The question is, which constitutes the majority of our spiritual diet? Now, before you get the idea that I'm being too heavy and serious this morning, I want you to listen to this letter that was written by a young communist to his fiancée. Now, this was years ago. Breaking off their engagement, the girl's pastor had shared it with Billy Graham, who published it many years ago, And it has to do with commitment, with dedication to duty. This is what the communist student wrote. I'm quoting now. He says, we communists have a high casualty rate. We're the ones who get shot and hung and ridiculed and fired from our jobs and in every other way made us as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty We turn back to the party every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep us alive. We communists do not have the time or the money for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes or new cars. We have been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one great overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. We communists have a philosophy of life which no amount of money can buy. We have a cause to fight for, a definite purpose in life. We subordinate our petty personal selves into a great movement of humanity. And if our personal lives seem hard or our egos appear to suffer through subordination to the party, then we are adequately compensated by the thought that each of us in his small way is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind. There is one thing which I am in dead earnest about, and that is the communist cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife, my mistress, and my bread and meat. I work at it in the daytime and dream of it at night. Its hold on me grows, not lessens as time goes by. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating it to this force which both drives and guides my life. I evaluate people, looks, ideas, and actions according to how they affect the communist cause and by their attitude toward it. I've already been in jail because of my ideals, and if necessary, I'm ready to go before the firing squad. Unquote. Now, it wouldn't surprise me one bit to find that something very similar to this characterizes the mindset of those who have given themselves over to terrorist groups like ISIS. But that, people, is dedication. That is a sense of duty. That is a commitment to a cause. Too bad it's the wrong cause. 
Here's the convicting question. Do you and I have that sense of duty in our walk with Christ today? I know we have a thousand excuses. You know what an excuse is, don't you? An excuse is a statement given to cover up for a duty not well done or not done at all. A ton of excuses is not what Christ is looking for. A Christ-like pattern of life does not excuse duty. A Christ-like pattern of life embraces duty. It takes responsibility. That's what Paul's writing about today as he closes chapter 2 in the book of Philippians. I'd like you to turn there. We're going back into our series on Philippians now. And we're looking at chapter 2, verses 25 to 30. 25 to 30. Let me read them for you. Paul writes, But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Now, in these verses, Paul introduces us to Epaphroditus, a man with a sense of duty. All we know about Epaphroditus is found right here in these six verses, plus in chapter 4, verse 18, which says, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. This man was sent by the Philippian church to bring a gift to Paul and to minister to his needs in prison. He's traditionally considered to be the bearer of this letter back to the Philippian church. And that's all we know about Epaphroditus. That's it. These verses. It's all we know of his mission. But that's not all we know about the man's character. In fact, if I were to have only seven verses of Scripture written about me, I wouldn't mind it being these. How about you? The name Epaphroditus, common in the first century, means lovely or charming. It has been suggested that his name may imply that his family may have been followers of the cult of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love and fertility, before his conversion to Christianity. Now, it's interesting to me that he never changed his name. Yet the portrait of this man's character is a glowing picture of Christian duty and faithfulness to Christ's example. And that's exactly why Paul singles him out. Remember what we're talking about here. If you back up to chapter 2, at the very beginning of chapter 2, in verse 5, I mean in verse 3, Paul says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. 
Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, and it talks about Jesus' example. Then in verse 19, Paul illustrates it again with Timothy's example, and now to close out chapter 2, he's using Epaphroditus as another example of those verses about Christian duty. When you read the name Epaphroditus, I want you to think duty. There are a few characteristics of Christian duty that we can glean from this man of God from these very few verses. The first one is this. Embracing our Christian duty involves a clear-cut definition of commitment. Commitment. Verse 25. Paul says, I thought it necessary to send him to you, Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who was also your messenger and minister to my needs. And there's a mouthful right there in that verse of Scripture. Paul identified Epaphroditus' character of commitment using five clear examples or terms, descriptive terms. Brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, and minister. Okay? Knowing who you are in the Christian family plays an enormous role in how you perform your duty, doesn't it? We need to know certain things about our relationship to others in the body of Christ. We need to know, first of all, Paul indicates here, that we share the same spiritual life. We are siblings. Paul calls Epaphroditus brother. Brother. He used the term my brother. The literal meaning of the word is from the same womb. Referring to those who are of the same nature the same nation. What a powerful designation coming from Paul. Epaphroditus was born of the same spirit as Paul. By the way, so are we, if you're in Christ, right? That's also us. As believers, we share the same spiritual nature, nature and we are citizens of the same spiritual country. We are, quote, fellow heirs of the same promise, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. We are siblings. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have responsibilities to fulfill toward one another. Sometime in your personal Bible study, search out the one another's of Scripture. And then, here's a suggestion for you. Purpose to take one each day. One each, just one each day and make a plan to practice it. That's easy enough to do, right? There are plenty of duties to fulfill there. You can get creative with it. Actually, there are 59 of them in the New Testament. That's right, 59. Just under 60 exhortations in Scripture to actually do something toward another person in the body of Christ. If you actually practiced one of these one another's a day, you would fulfill them every two months. Okay, six times a year, that's a New Year's resolution for you. 
As one blogger put it, these are behaviors which we may do out of an overflow of our relationship with Jesus, but they are not things that we do solely unto Jesus. Here's the big kicker. Other people must be involved in order to fulfill them. Got it? Take a moment and run through your filter of biblical knowledge. We can be intentional in the church about getting people stationed at posts, plugged into programs, and delivering curriculum, but where are we intentional about one-anothering? Andy Stanley once observed it this way. He says, the primary activity of the church was one-anothering, the early church. One-anothering one another. I like that. When everyone sits in rows... You can't do one another's, can you? Epaphroditus, it seems, was all about one anothering one another. That's the duty involved in sharing the same spiritual life with people. We share the same spiritual life. We're siblings. One another each other. Number two, we share the same spiritual labors, Paul says. We are standbys. We stand by each other. Look at verse 25 again. Verse 25 says, my brother and fellow worker. Epaphroditus was Paul's fellow worker or co-laborer. Paul had many that he considered as co-laborers, standbys to work alongside of him. As a matter of fact, if you turn to Romans chapter 16, there's a whole list of people that Paul greets. In verse 3, he says, greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Look at verse 9. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. Verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. And there are others. Wouldn't you like to be on Paul's list? Considered as a fellow worker of Paul? You should be. In fact, if you are a Christian, you ought to recognize the fact that we are all co-laborers, not only with Paul, but with God. And as such, we share the same spiritual liabilities. That's the third thing we see in verse 25. We are soldiers. Look at verse 25 again. Paul calls him my brother, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier. If you hadn't figured it out yet, this is war. This is war. We're involved in a spiritual battle. And we are co-soldiers in the service of Christ. Our duty not only encompasses being a worker, but every worker in the Christian family is a warrior. How do you view yourself? Do you view yourself that way? If you've forgotten that fact, refamiliarize yourself by reading Ephesians chapter 6. God didn't give us spiritual armor for nothing. You've got to keep it in your mind that you're not just a worker, you're a warrior. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 16 to 18 gives us a vivid picture of what it means to be both a worker and a warrior in God's kingdom. Nehemiah chapter 4 
verse 16, as they're building the wall, it says, from that day on, half of my servants carried on the work while half of them held the spears, the shields and the bows and the breastplates and the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. You get the picture? Worker, warrior. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built while the trumpeters stood near me. You know, as warriors, we're liable for each other. We need to watch out for each other and for our own spiritual safety. Epaphroditus, Paul says, was not just a worker. He was a warrior as well. He stood by Paul and shared the dangers involved in standing up firm for Christ. We have a Christian duty to be that way with each other because we have many enemies, don't we? The world, the flesh, and the devil, just to name three. We must hold on, fight hard, and endure long if there's going to be a constant and subtle and powerfully aggressive influence from, from us to the world. And if we don't conquer the world, says one writer, the world will conquer us. The first thing that will undermine Christian duty is worldly distractions. And as soldiers in active service, we need to guard against those things. They will tangle us up. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4 really reflect this well. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 3, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, well, he goes into another metaphor there, but verses 3 and 4 talk about this soldier aspect of our Christian walk. Frankly and honestly, we are an entangled people, aren't we? I struggle with it, just like you do. The evil one has us so busy doing other things that we don't have an ounce of time for spiritual things sometimes. And the first thing to go is usually the Word of God, isn't it? The Word of God is the first thing to go. And the Word of God, according to Ephesians 6, is our only offensive weapon. The only offensive weapon in our spiritual armor. Paul used that word entangled. That's a very graphic picture. Paints this picture of a soldier trying to draw his sword in the fight and getting all tangled up in his cloak while doing it. Now, that's hilarious to watch on a TV sitcom, but when it comes to serious business of spiritual conflict, that's not a joke, is it? It's no joke. If you're all tangled up in worldly affairs and you can't get your sword, the enemy of your soul is going to shred you to pieces. We need to be encouraging each other and pushing each other to be in this word. Amen? We need to realize that our duty is characterized by the facts that we share the same spiritual life, the same spiritual labors, the same spiritual liabilities, and also, fourthly, Paul says, we share the same spiritual message. We're sent ones. Back in verse 25, Paul says, my brother, my fellow worker, 
my fellow soldier, who is also your messenger. Like Epaphroditus, we're messengers. Not only are we siblings, standbys, waiting to help, or not only are we soldiers ready to fight the battle, but we're also sent ones to deliver a solid spiritual message. And the word Paul uses here is the word for apostle. That word messenger is the same word as the word for apostle. It means one sent with a message. In its broadest sense, it means that we're all apostles in some sense. We're missionaries. We're ambassadors sent with a message. It's part of our duty as Christians. If you're in Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is a very important passage to you, or it should be. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 18 says all these things, well, let me back up to 17. This lays the groundwork for it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us what? The ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us that word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We're messengers. We're apostles, so to speak. We share the same spiritual message And then one more thing Paul indicates here about Epaphroditus that we can apply to our own lives is we share the same spiritual ministry. We are servants. Verse 25 again says that Epaphroditus was your messenger and minister to my needs. We're sent by Christ to bring a gift to the world, the gift of the gospel. But not only are we sent to bring a gift, but also to be a gift. You get that? We bring a gift and we are a gift. The word minister here means one who ministers relief. In other words, a servant. It was used of one who performs a public service at his own expense. And it's also used of those performing priestly sorts of ministry. And according to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're all priests, aren't we? If you're in Christ. The question is, are we available enough to perform this kind of service with people? Someone once said that availability is rarer than ability. And the problem with with our sense of duty for a lot of of us is not in our ability, because Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but in our availability. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, when I get a minute, right? Guess what? That day never comes. We never get the minute. Embracing our Christian duty, first of all, involves a clear-cut definition of commitment. We must be available as a sibling to stand with and encourage, to be a companion to the rest of the family of God, as a standby to stand alongside them in the work, as a soldier to stand firm in the battle, as a sent one to stand true in the world, and as a servant to stand out as an example who cares for the interests of Jesus Christ and therefore other people as God gives us opportunity. Epaphroditus 
was an example of one who cared deeply about Christ and about others. He is our example, according to Paul here. And so secondly, Paul says, embracing our Christian duty also involves a complete dedication to the cause. Look at verse 26 of Philippians 2. It says that Epaphroditus was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard, had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice that I may be less concerned about you. Epaphroditus was dedicated to the cause of Christ no matter what it involved. He was dedicated both emotionally and physically. Total dedication always involves these two areas. Number one, it involves compassionate emotional intensity. Compassionate emotional intensity. I read a disturbing statistic some time ago. One magazine reported that 34% of American preschool teachers, administrators, parents, and child development specialists said that the most important thing for a child to learn in preschool is, quote, self-reliance and self-confidence, unquote. Now, that'd be fine, except for what else they said. The percentage who said that sympathy, empathy, and concern for others was important was most important, guess what the percentage was? 5%. You don't have to teach your preschooler that. It's not important. But self-reliance and self-confidence is. Is it any wonder that today children of 9 and 10 years of age commit murder? And we read about it in the papers? Those findings would lead us to believe that things like sympathy and empathy and concern for others are qualities that are relegated to fictitious and dated television shows such as Lassie or Little House on the Prairie or Anne of Green Gables, you name them. Things that have gone on in the past, certainly they're not real for the real world. Now, if these things are seen in the real world, they are most often demonstrated toward animals, not infants. Ecology, not the elderly. And the right to take life, not the race to preserve life. That's what's happening today. That's where compassion and empathy and sympathy is being put. We live in a twisted world, folks, where compassionate emotional intensity is misdirected and dedication is misguided. Epaphroditus had emotional intensity that was directed toward the right areas. Paul says that he showed sympathy, empathy, and concern for others, it says there. When he was ministering to Paul for the cause of Christ, he fell sick. And indeed, Paul says he was sick to the point of death. Yet his main concern was for the Philippian church. He longed for them and he was worried over their worrying about him. You ever meet somebody like that? They're sick and they're worried that you're worried about them. Paul said he was distressed. 
He used the word distressed over the fact that they had heard that he was sick. Paul chose this strong word when he used the word distressed. It's only used two other places in the entire New Testament, and both of them describe Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. It describes this restless, half-distracted state produced by mental or physical stress. You can usually tell where a person is really at when they react to incredible physical or emotional stress. Are they more concerned about themselves or about others? I'll never forget the profound experience as my family and I gathered around my father as he passed from this life. All of us were with him, maybe about 40 of us or so, for almost a week in the hospital room where he slipped in and out of consciousness. The nursing staff just had their hands full with us. It was a poignant time. It was filled with tears and grief and punctuated with periods of laughter and memories. But one of the most prominent things that has stayed with me to this day is how my dad, as he lay there drawing his last breath in this world, was concerned not for his own comfort, but for my mother and her well-being as she was sitting next to him in the bed. He didn't take any thought for his own comfort. There we were in the hospital room, his body filled with cancer, his breathing forced and intense, the emotions intense, and do you know what his concern was? For her needs. That she was okay. That she was comfortable. We need that kind of dedication. I need that kind of commitment to Christ. You know what happens when I'm stressed out most of the time? I know it's wrong, but I'm interested in one thing and one thing alone, getting some relief, right? Is that how you are when you're stressed? That's selfish. That's selfish concern, and I'm convicted by that. Epaphroditus, however, is an example of having a different kind of compassionate emotional intensity. He was concerned about the Philippians' concern for him, that they would hold themselves responsible for his illness. That's the emotional intensity of a servant of others. It's dedicated to the cause, but not at the expense of others. It's willing, rather, to expend itself for others. Total dedication not only involves compassionate emotional intensity, but Paul seems to indicate here that it involves complete physical exertion as well. It says that not only was he concerned about the Philippians, but he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Verses 27 here and 30 say that Epaphroditus was next door neighbors with death for the cause of Christ. Verse 30 says that he risked his life. The word there means to hazard with one's life. In other words, Epaphroditus willingly exposed himself to danger and gambled with his life in his dedication to the work of Christ for them. He was willing to personally go to minister to Paul regardless of the risks involved to him. You know what this would be like? This would be like you and I being commissioned to go and minister to Pastor Saeed Abedini and his need right now in that Iranian prison. Would we be willing to go? 
Because we need people like that just as much today as they did then. Warren Wisby wrote, Our churches today need men and women who are burdened for missions and for those in difficult places of service. Epaphroditus wasn't content to just contribute to the offering. He gave himself to bring the offering. Are we content just to sit back and to give to the offering and shuffle the burdens of ministry on somebody else? God doesn't need your money. And he doesn't need mine either. He wants our hearts, souls, minds, and strength in love for him. As Americans, we always think the answer to every problem is to write a check. Look, friends, God owns the bank. He doesn't want your money. He wants you and me. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them a pairs ahead of them to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He didn't say, pray for financial backing, did he? He didn't say, beseech the Lord for financial backing. He said, pray for laborers. And if we pray for laborers, then we must realize that we might be the answer to our own prayer. It doesn't necessarily take a strong person to be dedicated. It just takes a faithful person to be dedicated. Hudson Taylor once said, all of God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. God was with Epaphroditus. It took him through the trials and continued to use him powerfully. Look at verse 28 again. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Embracing our Christian duty involves defining our commitment as a Christian, dedication to the cause of Christ, and finally, embracing our Christian duty often results in gaining respectful celebration in the church of Christ. Look at verses 29 and 30. Paul says, Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. This may be somewhat misleading, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this here. Quick. Paul's not in any way advocating a prideful elevation of any person in the church for the purpose of self-glory. It's not what he's saying here. On the contrary, Paul exhorted the church to receive and welcome him in the Lord with all joy. Epaphroditus deserved a favorable welcome home because as their representative, he was an example of total dedication on their behalf. Not only were they to receive him, but Paul exhorted them to respect him. They were to value him and all Christians like him, it says, in high honor. Hold men and women like him in high regard. Due respect should be shown to those who willfully risk their lives for Christ's service. We should hold them in high regard, Paul says. A Christ-like pattern of life embraces duty. And Epaphroditus 
is as good an example of that as any to imitate. In fact, the early church societies of, in the early church, there were societies of men and women that arose called the Parabolani, or Parabolani, or in English, better in English, the riskers and gamblers who ministered to the sick and, and, and imprisoned, who saw to it that martyrs and even enemies received an honorable burial. They risked their lives and reputations for the sake of their Christian duty. It was once said that the duty of many should not be the task of the few. Each one of us has an opportunity to give ourselves to someone else in the name of Christ. I really encourage you to take the list of one another's of Scripture. Cut them up, put them in a jar, set them by your door. When you go out in the morning, reach in the jar, pull out one of those things, read it, and purpose to fulfill it every single day for the next year. You know, maybe it might result in something as radical as caring for Ebola victims at the risk of contracting the disease yourself. Or maybe it's as close to home as being a faithful wife, caring for an unreasonable husband or giving personal attention to that hard-to-love child. Just as important. You see, it takes dedication, no question about it. It also takes recognizing our Christian duty, which we often overlook. Jesus said, to the extent that you did it, to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them. You did it to me. Duty, said Phillips Brooks, makes us do things well, but love makes us do them beautifully. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do love you. And Christ has called us to do things beautifully in his name. God, I pray that whatever it is that you are calling us to this year, first of all, make our hearts sensitive to hear your voice and our ears sensitive to hear it, that we might embrace that calling and then give us the courage and the willingness, Lord, and the desire and the passion to fulfill whatever calling that you have laid on our hearts. For I pray in the name of Christ, for the sake of his kingdom, amen.